Money brings resources, sure, but it also brings its unique challenges. Whether you consider yourself wealthy or not, most leaders find themselves interacting with people and families who have wealth. In this episode, healthy ways to approach wealth, both professionally and personally. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 606. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the realities that many of us navigate in our work in leadership and in our personal lives is how we handle wealth and how we have conversations about wealth. In some of our families and organizations, there are many, many resources available and wealth is a constant conversation and presence. And for almost every leader, they are interacting with individuals, with organizations that have wealth, doing a better job for all of us at being able to enter into those conversations and realities effectively is such a wonderful competency for leaders to develop. I'm so glad today to welcome someone who has really dedicated her career to examine this in such helpful ways and help us to do a better job at navigating the conversations we all have about wealth. I'm pleased to introduce to you Kristen Keffler. She is a thought leader and consultant at the forefront of a global shift in family wealth advising known as Wealth 3.0. She guides affluent and enterprising families, rising gen, and the professionals who support them in embracing the positive power of wealth, aligning their vision with their impact. As the founder of Illumination 360, she specializes in human motivation and behavioral change, family dynamics, family governance, rising gen education and development, and intergenerational collaboration. She is the Dean of Positive Psychology for the Purposeful Planning Institute, sits on the Board of Advisors for the Bailey Program for Family Enterprise at the University of Denver, and is a faculty member with the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. She's also a certified trainer with 2164, a national nonprofit for advancing multi-generational philanthropy, and is the co-founder of Beneficiary Bootcamp. She is the author of The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Kristen, what a pleasure to meet you and have you on the show. Well, Dave, thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to be with you and excited to be with your listeners. This may be awkward since we're having this conversation for the very first time of you and I interacting, yet I want to start by asking you about your shiny black sports car. (laughs) (laughs) There's a beautiful story in the book of you talking about what happened when you were in high school, and I think it's a wonderful entry point for a conversation about wealth. Would you share that story? Yeah, absolutely. So so in order for this story to have, to, for, for people to understand it, let me give just a little bit of context first. So I'm the, I'm the youngest of four in my family. All of my brothers had left and were at college or beyond. And my dad said to me, I was driving an old Honda Civic hatchback that was like a third-hand car at the time. And he said to me, if I got this full-ride scholarship that I had been seeking that he would he would buy me a a new car and oh. i was like great how fun and i didn't get that scholarship i got a different scholarship but it wasn't full ride but i think my dad just wanted to buy me a car like he he had the money i was the only kid left at home and so 
so we went out and he, he said, what do you want? And I, I, we looked around and I ended up with this fancy black little two door coupe sports car. And I drove it around for the weekend and just took my friends out. We had so much fun. And then I went to go drive to school on Monday morning. And I had this moment of panic because I thought, man, if I park this thing in the student parking lot, like I am at high risk of getting door dings and other things. Mm. And, but I decided like, okay, I, I'm going to go park it over in the teacher parking lot. And I drove over to the teacher parking lot and pulled in and then had this even like worse sinking moment of looking around and realizing that me as a 17 year old senior, I was driving a nicer car than any teacher in the parking lot. Mm. And I felt sick to my stomach. And I parked it over in the corner and I kind of slunk into school. And it was really, you know, looking back on it now, I I understand what was happening at the time. What I felt was like this combination of guilt and shame. And it was really confusing because it I had the sense of this is really, what a, what a gift. And that was exactly where it came from in my dad's heart was like, ah, she's my youngest kid. She's academically strong. She got a scholarship. Like, I can do it. And it was a fun and joyous thing for him to do Mm. and a fun and joyous thing for me to receive until I realized that I was the the intersection between my personal experience with it and my peer group and my community, in that case, also the teachers, and how I had this sense for the first time in my life of feeling some shame for something that, in this case, it was a material thing that represented some level of affluence. And and it was really just intended to be a gift, but I got stuck in this place of feeling sort of crummy for the whole rest of the school year as I like sneakily was parking in the teacher's parking lot. But it for me that that car was my first real experience with a sort of the tangliness of my interrelationship with money and in this case with also, also with the extension of family financial resources. I so appreciate you sharing that, not only here, but in the book. And I think that as you point out in your work, wealth and money are really hard things for a lot of us to talk about because of our societal pressures around it. And also just because it, for all the reasons you mentioned, that there are, personally, it becomes very complex. And as you point out in the book, there's this isn't anything this isn't a book for a cry for sympathy for the wealthy, right? But it's no. looking at the real realities of psychological challenges that wealth brings to people. And I, I I think that leads to the myth, because the title of the book is The Myth of the Silver Spoon. What's the myth? Yeah, yeah, great question. So the, the myth is that we have this, we, we, have, we culturally have a pretty messy relationship, a pretty unconscious relationship with money. And by by extension with wealth, but we, as a individualistic capitalistic culture, we have, we have this dual relationship with money and with wealth, where it's like something we both hold in high regard, right? Like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like you can rise from the bottom to the top with hard work. These are all part of our cultural narratives. And we also have this, this feeling that money will make everything better. And there the truth is money does make a lot of things better. Having enough money to live in a safe neighborhood, to have food, to have good health care, 
Like there's no doubt that that money can create ease and safety and security in ways that help us take care of our basic needs and we can move to higher order things like self-actualization. But more money doesn't make things more better, right? Like there's a point, there's a there's an economics curve called the the inverted U that that really illustrates the point that there's no such thing as an unmitigated good, meaning that there's a point at which something good tables off and the more of it you get, it actually it can make things harder. Money is one of those things where there's a point at which the good that it can provide starts to table off and the more and more you get of it, it actually can create, can make some things even harder. And one of those things is the psychological landscape, particularly of somebody born into that situation where they weren't the earners. I think earners have a different relationship with the money that they have created than their family members, people who are the beneficiaries of that. And the myth is that like being born into that situation makes everything easy. Born with a silver spoon in your mouth, and and like no no one wants to hear the problems of a rich kid. Like there shouldn't be problems. The the things that you're complaining about, they're not real problems because you have money. And at the heart of it, the myth is is acknowledging that yeah, th- this is not a cry for sympathy for people with financial affluence. And and honestly, the families I work with, the the rising generation family members I work with would cringe at that idea. Mm. But what this is, is, is an acknowledgement that money doesn't make the rest of life's problems go away. And in fact, it can create some some psychological challenges of its own. This is not an insignificant number of people. Uh, one of the things you cite in the book is there are currently 6.3 million individuals in North America with a net worth between 5 million and 30 million. And of course, there's a smaller number above that. And a lot of these people own companies. A lot right. of them are senior executives. And I think about even if this isn't, many folks in our audience do not fall in that category, but almost every one of us interact with people who are in this category. They are the owners of the business. They are, yep. if we're the executive director of a nonprofit, they're our donors. They're the people who are out in the community advocating or not for the work. And as you point out, there's some really, I think, understanding the dynamics of wealth and what families are experiencing who go through who who have wealth, I think is really helpful for us to be able to interact better. And also a lot of lessons we can utilize in our own families too. And one of the things to reinforce the point you just made, I highlighted this line in the book. You write, many of my clients tell me they have very few, if any, close relationships where they can fully be themselves. Mm-hmm. And you highlight something called a double bind. Tell me more about that. Yeah. One of the things that I hear really commonly with the rising generation family members I work with, and and honestly, often the parents, it's not not often, again, the wealth creator, him or herself, often has a very different relationship with the resources they've created than even their spouse, and definitely than their kids or grandkids. It's just a different kind of ownership of it. But one of the things that that I hear from often from spouses and definitely from the rising generation is that wealth can create this filter where they're not exactly sure if the people who are seeking them out to be their friends, if they are genuinely their friends, or if they are 
wanting to be around them because they have the best toys or go on great vacations or whatever are are attracted to just the ease that they see in this person's life. And that it can be hard, especially when you're in a developmental stage of life. So preteen, teenagers, emerging adults, where you're just trying to figure out who you are yourself. And that trying to then understand how other people are interacting with you and how much of it is true versus how much of it is kind of a facsimile of friendship and friendships. And that creates this double bind of how can I, when I'm, so I'm, I'm speaking specifically in those ages where people are really just trying to figure out who they are anyway. And how do I find my pathway to to really be who I am and share my authentic voice when I don't even know if I can pressure test who that is with the people around me. I don't know if they are giving me a honest filter as a, if they're really my friend or not, or if they just like being around me because of what I have. And it can create a really confusing problem around identity. Like you can imagine how there are on the spectrum of people who have financial, who have inherited or have access to financial resources this way, they can kind of move on the this continuum between over-identifying with wealth because they, from a relationship sense, they see that it gets them attention and, and they feel important. So then they're identifying with the wealth rather than really cultivating their own core identity, or they way under-identify with it, trying to get as far away as possible from the wealth, from its influence, from the name that may be associated with it. And in that, they they also don't have a healthy integration of their family story and their and and all of the things that their family stands for. And it really can create this double bind that can become very isolating. When I had originally gotten connected with you, I was thinking we'd have a conversation that would be for our audience just to understand and appreciate the wealthy folks in our lives, the people we work with, the people who run the businesses that we work for. And I, I really changed my mind that there's so much here that we can actually learn. Because even even though I know many in our audience don't have the wealth that we mentioned at the beginning, that the I think a lot of the patterns are so similar, though. And one of the things, you know, I think we can all get better at this. And one of the things that I can really identify with is you mentioned in the book that one of the biggest fears of affluent families is that they will ruin their children by giving them too much or making their lives too easy. Yep. And and the term learned helplessness is one that has been used a lot. I think many of us have heard that term. And w- one of the other lines that I highlighted in the book was this one. The headline news here is that it is actually not helplessness that is learned, but mastery that is learned. Tell yeah. me about that distinction, because that strikes me as so critical. Yeah, it it is so critical. It's so exciting, too, I think. So learned helplessness was originally a term that came out of Marty Seligman and Steve Mayer's work in the late 1960s. And they were their their experiments were with dogs, which I think both of them would say they would not experiment with with dogs today. But at the time, the 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 experiments were about trying to understand the conditions, the, the psychological conditions and what happens when someone feels like they don't have control over their circumstances. And without going into the experimental design, because I, I want to save our time for other other topics, basically what they 
what they learned at the time in the late 1960s, their conclusions were that when dogs were put in a situation where they felt like they didn't have control to change that situation, they stopped trying. So they, in this case, they were in these, they were getting low level shocks, apparently very low level. Marty said he actually shocked himself. He did everything he did to the dogs he did to himself, um, but it was enough that they they would want to get out of the the cage that they were in. And when they found that they couldn't, they stopped trying and they got depressed and then they stopped taking action in their in their lives. And by extension, the thought at the time was that they had learned to become helpless when they saw that they couldn't change the circumstances that were keeping them stuck. But what newer science, and again, this came Marty Seligman and Steve Mayer. Steve Mayer went on to to do a lot more work in neuroscience, extending out of psychology into neurobiology. And with, with newer science, they were actually able to look at what areas of the brain were getting triggered and lit up during what they had termed helpless experiences. And ultimately, what they found was that their original hypothesis that it would that helplessness was learned was wrong. What they found through the ability to do some neuroimaging during these kind of simulated experiences was that that we that helplessness is actually our default state, but what we learn is mastery. And we learn that through having small doses of age and stage appropriate difficulty that we learn that we can overcome. And at each step, as we learn that we are capable, we get this stronger feeling of of being able to have mastery over our domains, over our experiences, saying like, I'm in a bad relationship. I can change that. I'm in a job I don't like. I can change that rather than just accepting the circumstances as they are and becoming more depressed, feeling that we are stuck. And so what's really interesting about this is that this idea that one, appropriate doses of difficulty are so important for our growth and development. And so don't shield ourselves from it, one. And two, don't shield your kids from it. So importantly, don't shield your kids from it. But it can't be difficulty that's so overwhelming that we don't yet have the tools to meet and and overcome it right so it's it is appropriate amounts of difficulty that teach us that we have mastery and once we gain that it's like the momentum builds because you can at each level recognize your capability and stretch a little further and then this is this beautiful flywheel effect yeah there's so many examples in the book of this and it just strikes me as like such an important point for all of us, uh, regardless of level of wealth in our families. And uh, one of the invitations you make to us thinking about this in our own families is to have decisions grounded in values and aligning with a val- with a vision of thriving. And I'm, I'm wondering maybe if you could share an example of like, what would that look like? Maybe even we go back to where we started of your dad and the car and all that, like, what would that look like that'd be different? Because I think a lot of families do want to help and support their kids. And at the same time, they don't want to run in the situation where there's where they haven't developed some of that that challenge and that discipline. What does it look like? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. I think that if I think back on that, that particular experience with the little black sports car and my dad 
I think that one of the things that would have probably made a pretty significant difference to me on multiple fronts is if my dad would have said, I'm really excited about the scholarship you got. I want to help you upgrade a car. And I don't want to get put you in a situation where you're driving something that that is far above your pay grade right now. So let, let's sit down and talk through a budget. I'm going to pay for 75%. I'm going to ask you to take on 25% because it's important for you to learn how money works. You know, I said at the beginning of our of our conversation, like I was pretty well unaware of money. My greatest saving grace is that I liked to collect it. Like I, I always saved my allowance. I always saved my babysitting money just because I like to see it grow. Mm. But it wasn't, It I mostly was not aware of things like what, how much tuition cost at my private school and how was that relative to how much my dad earned? And those kinds of things I was totally buffered from. So the idea of how much this car was relative to what other 17-year-olds might be driving, I was, I was entirely unconnected to that relative amount. And it would have made a big difference in my experience and also my financial education to have my dad sit down and for us to talk about budgets, for us to talk about some sort of cost sharing where I would have some skin in the game, something that was reasonable that I could work towards. But but me, I probably would have felt a different kind of ownership. I probably would have picked a different car. And I probably would have not felt a the shame that I felt parking in the teacher's parking lot, walking into into the school, knowing I had a nicer car than anybody else there. And I feel like that would have been a decision grounded in a value that would have made a significant difference for me. And if you're willing for me to tell one more dad story, I I do have one where I, I think he did such a brilliant job. And I mean, it was truly one of the great pivot points of my, of my life. So I'll try to keep this one short. So this was, I was 29 when I started my coaching and consulting work that I, that grew into what I do today. I, so I was young, but I, I had, was at a jumping off point from my job that I'd had. And I, this was something I was really passionate about doing. And I was like, I'm going to go try my hand at, at doing this work with, with families, with rising gen and families. And I had a business plan and that business plan had me earning income in I don't know, six months or something. And anybody who's ever started a business knows that it takes a little longer than probably you first think to really start generating some sustainable income. For me, it was 18 months in and I still was living on savings. And I was getting near the end of my savings. And I remember being at my parents' house on their beautiful back deck, overlooking the lake that they lived on. And then my dad was asking me how things were going. And I said, it's getting scary. Like, I, I think I have one or two months left that I'll be able to pay my mortgage. And then I'm I like, I'm, I'm, I'm out of liquid money. And he, I don't know that at the time what I was asking for, I think I was asking for a lifeline, but I, I'm not really conscious about what, what, what I was wanting. But what my dad said is he said, we are so proud of you. We see you working so hard. We know you're going to have a big impact in the work you do. And and I could feel myself starting to like exhale, like, okay, they're going to write me a check and I'm going to be able to get through this really scary, sticky point. And he said, mom and I always have your back. And if you need to, you can move back into the basement. Mm. And I was like, 
I don't want to move into the basement. <laughs> I, I need a check. Like I need, I need some money to get through this. But what really what he was saying in that moment is you don't need me to save you. Mm. You know how to do this. Go dig in, work a little harder and you will make it happen. And by golly, he was right. Like I left that dinner. I, I felt a hundred percent loved and seen and supported and a hundred percent terrified that I would not have what I needed to pay my mortgage in two months. But I went back to my office that Monday and I did the stuff that was so scary for me to do, like follow up on proposals, call up some, you know, somebody I had talked to and say, Hey, can I come in? And can we talk about what, what a scope of work might look like? And I tell you what, Dave, by the end of, I don't know if it was a week or two weeks, I had landed to that date, the biggest contract I'd ever landed. And it was enough money to actually get me through the next six months. And once I realized I never would have led myself to the scary place of like putting on my big girl pants and going and asking for business that way, if my dad had written me a check, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone to that scary edgy place on myself where I could be so rejected. But I found out like, that's how you do it. That's how you build skill. That's how you get people to believe in what you're doing is you got to believe in yourself enough to go stand out there and say, Hey, like I'm ready to do this work with you. So I would say that was while the the car was a decision, not, I mean, maybe it's grounded in some values for my dad, but that he didn't express to me. I felt like that experience would have been different for me if we would have had a more values-based conversation. The what happened then 12 years later, as I was at the edge with starting my own business was so values-based and so clear that money wasn't going to solve the problem for me, that I needed to go through the dark night of my own soul to get to the place of believing in myself. And that was pivotal. I'm hearing two things here that I think are huge. One of them is grounding these conversations and values. And so often we hear in our work as leaders, like the importance of values and vision. And yet I think that sometimes we forget to also bring that into our conversations about money and wealth too, like grounding those conversations in values, so key. And then the other thing I'm hearing too, and I'm thinking especially about the example you mentioned of like maybe that a parent or a wealthy person would support, in fact, substantially something, but that there's ownership for the person yep. who's receiving that. And that ownership doesn't have to be 100%. That yes. ownership could be 10% or 20%. But by actually giving you or whoever a stake, I and mean, there's some wonderful examples in the book of like uh, a parent or, or another family member, like even if it's 10 or 15 or 20%, but the net psychological effect on that person who's receiving that support is way different if yes. it's 20% than if it was 0%. Totally, totally. And it's, and I think that this, this gets at a, what I think is another, it's a core point of the book, but it's, it's also sort of the core area of the, the soapbox that I want to stand on in my life, which is this idea that, you know, we do have a complicated relationship with money collectively, and that we often think that money will solve most of our problems. And that as parents, when we when we have the financial resources to solve problems for our kids we can be very quick to do it because who doesn't want to who doesn't want to support their kid who doesn't want their their kid to feel that 
and the at the heart of it, the point is that money's not the only way you can show support. And in fact, psychological support, emotional support, the, hey, I got your back, I'm in your corner, is far more powerful than, hey, I can I can write you this check. And and it doesn't mean that 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 has to be that you can't use money as a tool. But if money's the only tool that we're using, we're I think we're one, we're missing the point, and two, we're probably missing the boat. There is so much in this book. I have a whole list of things I still want to ask you about, but <laughs> we don't <laughs> we won't be able to get to it all. I would really encourage everyone to the, what a wonderful resource this is, especially if you are your family has wealth and you're navigating some of this. And also, if you happen to work with someone, be close to someone, work in a family business, this to me, I, I wish like I had had this perspective sooner of like working with knowing people in my life who've run family businesses. I mean, what a powerful model it is. So I'd invite everyone to, if this is something, I mean, one of the things that I find is interesting is just like some of the things that we project and say, like, go find your passion. We don't talk about money. Like some of those misnomers, like like what we can do to do better. I mean, there's so much in the book that really outlines that. I want to ask you one other question though, Kristen, as you wrote this book, it, it is a culmination of so many years of working with high net worth individuals and families and their experiences, as you put this all together and um, thought about all the stories and the principles and the research, what's something in writing this that you changed your mind on? Mm, that is such a great question. I was really struck earlier in our conversation when you said you had changed your mind on on something, and I was struck by what a beautiful thing it is to be willing to rethink right to to go oh wow like i'm i have a fresh perspective on this now so i i very much appreciate the question and I, the thing i will say is that what came up for me is that it it was really in some ways an anchoring of a wish like what changed for me is that i've always been driven in this work i i have felt strongly that money and concentrated wealth has huge potential positive power. And in fact, our country has a long history of closely held wealth by families and, and organizations being, being a massive lever of change that governments and NGOs don't have, they can't move as quickly. So I, I, I have always felt that. And there have been some moments, some big moments in my journey where I've had a crisis of belief, where I've really looked at myself and said like, are you deluding yourself? Like, can we actually, does concentrated wealth, can it really be used for a tool for good? Or do we just need to not have concentrated wealth and start from scratch with a new system, which, you know, is not really going to happen today. And the thing that I changed my mind about was maybe a after the number of interviews I did and the number of stories that I looked at, I that crisis for me has been totally abated like i i truly believe that individuals who are psychologically healthy have integrated their money story are strong and on purpose and on a path of self actualization who also have access to financial resources will be some of the biggest most powerful most incredible change agents that our culture will have access to and so well, I maybe flipped your question a little bit because I did actually have the belief, so I didn't change my mind, but 
what writing the book did was it absolutely took away any doubt in my mind that there are more people with good hearts, good minds who are committed to making change, who also have access to financial resources, then there are people who are entitled and greedy and and just want more and more for themselves. And that makes me very excited and feel hopeful for what we have ahead of us. Kristen Keffler is the author of The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Kristen, thank you so much for your work. Dave, thank you for having me on. We've had many conversations about money over the years. We've even had a few conversations about parenting. We talked a bit about both in this conversation. One of the recommended episodes I suggest for you is episode 310, How to Reduce Drama with Kids. A good complement to this conversation, we talk a little bit more about parenting there with Tina Payne Bryson. She's the co-author with Daniel Siegel of my favorite book on parenting of all time, No Drama Discipline. It is a book I continually think about almost every day in interacting with our kids that are now 10 and 8 years old, and it has framed so many wonderful interactions in our entire family, the perspective that she's brought. Uh, She goes into some detail in it in episode 310. If you have young people in your life, whether you're a parent or extended family, I think episode 310 is a really healthy starting point on how to have great interactions with kids using listening and empathy, so many of the things we talk about regularly on the show from the professional context. I'd also recommend episode 396, Speaking of Money, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. Jill Schlesinger was my guest. She's the host of the Jill on Money podcast. I listen to it regularly. Jill's been on the show a couple of times over the years. She has a wonderful no-nonsense approach to money. And in episode 396, 396 rather, she walks us through some of the key missteps that folks tend to make with making financial decisions. A helpful conversation for you. And also a good compliment to that is episode 502, The Way to Build Wealth with Chris Hogan. Chris and I talked about his research and looking at what are the common things that work, what doesn't. You'll find some surprises in that conversation. But one of the things that shouldn't surprise any of us is a big factor is, are we regularly contributing to retirement plans if we have access to it? If you aren't, a good invitation to start and episode 502 might be a good motivator for you to begin going down that journey. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. A lot of those conversations are more through the personal lens, but we've had many professional lens conversations over the years on finance and budgets and how to think about that in the context of the work that we do as leaders. In fact, there's an entire section in the episode library called Finance and Budget. So if you're looking for a bit more on the numbers and thinking about how to frame that well, I encourage you to check that out inside of our free membership. And if you haven't set up your free membership, I'm inviting you to do that now. Go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your membership. You will then have access to the entire episode library since 2011, searchable by topic. Finance and budgets is just one of the several dozen topic areas inside of the library. That way you can find what is going to be most relevant to you right now. I invite you to join in with us and also to be able to access all of the other resources that are inside the free membership. I'm looking forward to seeing you inside the website for that. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Annie Duke back to the show. She is going to be joining me to have a conversation about how to quit bad stuff faster. Join me for that important conversation next week with Annie. Have a great one, and I'll see you on Monday.